Sarah. Today we're going to be looking at the history of the alien encounter of various kinds. We're going to be looking at the religions that stem directly from said alien encounters, and we're going to be digging into what shape these religions tend to take and how their belief structure tend to change over the decades. More specifically, we're going to be looking at what needs they serve exactly, what questions they answer that aren't already answered by greater society or already established organised religions. And I guess the aim of our discussion today is to look at UFO religions. We're going to look at what insight they can give us into the anxiety of the time from which they originate. And we're going to attempt to answer or at least find a fundamental question of our time. Big aim. Um, The question for which a 2020s birthed UFO movement might promise an answer So I guess with those uh, lofty aims out of the way, let's get going. I should mention that in my research, um, Benjamin Zeller's edited The Handbook of UFO Religions has been absolutely irreplaceable. Many of the methods of discussion I'll be bringing up today do stem from that work, and I highly recommend it if you can get hold of a copy. But please be aware I'm not an expert in this. I'm merely interested in the topic, so... Errors are to be expected, and I'd love to be corrected on them. So, first up, what is a UFO? Now, that should be a very simple question to answer. I mean, on the most basic terms, a UFO stands for an unidentified flying object, when the phrase was coined, and that is all it's supposed to designate. It is a sighting, usually an aerial sighting, of a craft or an object whose origin or identification is unexplained. And that's it. But it doesn't take a genius to know that as soon as you start digging even slightly into the topic, it's very clear that that is not what a UFO is. A UFO, in fact, has has come to have a very, very narrow definition when you think about it. When we think of UFO... And when we discuss UFO in terms of today's discussion, we don't mean a weather balloon that someone has mistakenly identified as a craft. That's not what we mean. We mean narratives of human being visited by extraterrestrial life. And for that reason, the UFO is a very, very interesting topic because, again, I'm going to borrow from the handbook of UFO religions here, It summarises very succinctly in the beginning, in the introduction, that the fundamental mythology of ufology not only tracks with broader religious mythologies, but reflects the same deep stories that religious mythologies seek to explain. Death, suffering, sex, the other. Carl Jung, um, noted psychiatrist, um, spoke on the UFO in his time and spoke of them as technological angels, speaks to even very early discourse on UFOs, reflecting that for many, it's not just the potential existence of extraterrestrial life that's interesting, but how we approach the subject, what it means that human existence seems to exist by necessity alongside a changing other and an almost fundamental narrative of 
a seemingly implacable, unrecognisable, yet humanoid figure visiting us, imposing on our lives. Every great period was marked by symbols pointing to the collective psyche of that time. UFOs appeared to people afflicted by the psychic and spiritual stress of living in a society dominated by science and technology. Things can be seen by many people independently of one another, or even simultaneously, which are not physically real. Now, I think very quickly we can start to see why classic UFO narrative came into real prevalence in 40s and 50s America. It came into prevalence in a world under stress. Not unique stress, but an interesting set of stresses. And from that came a very interesting stress response, I think we can say. Building on that very surface review, I'm going to outline in brief a couple of other modes of thought surrounding the study of UFOs and ufology. Deborah Battaglia uses the idea of the extraterrestrial as shaped in response to inadequacies of cultural models for explaining lived experience. We live in a changing world that is continuously outstripping our methods of comprehension. The common mythos of the intelligent visitor, just different enough to be understandable, and to challenge your ideas of our own intelligence and place in the universe, but so different as to entirely surpass our methods of understanding. A being that challenges contemporary methods of thought and goes some way to explain why, why lived experience often fails to fit the mould designed for it. The UFO provides a narrative for these kinds of questions. Lives that do not always seem to fit the model that we believe they should and experiences that cannot be easily explained that seem universal appear universal, appear across all kinds of societal bounds. This is something that the study of ufology starts to dig down into. Our discussion today is going to be fairly surface level. It's not going to be exhaustive. I'd like to provide an overview of the topic and some interesting little thought points that we can dive deeper into. The discussion will be predominantly, but not entirely, focused on modern English-speaking countries. The UFO discourse seems to have a stronger cultural impact in, as we've mentioned, America and also the UK. But the fact that these, these stories are still impactful, are still a massive part of popular culture, has something to say that, again, quoting from the handbook, the modern extraterrestrial and UFO have come to represent the new conditions of democratic politics at the millennium, with debates over rationality, truthfulness, and especially the politics of treatments of the other, foreigners, immigrants, and strangers. Narratives of visitation, otherness, and even abduction and disenfranchisement are not new, in fact, they can be argued as intrinsic to the human condition, but the modern UFO movement is interesting in that it 
has a comparatively narrow focus, and of course it was a rather unlikely birthing point of many modern religions, holding at their core a sincere belief in extraterrestrial visitation. So that's what we'll be exploring today. Why does a supposedly vague phrase such as UFO come to have such a narrow meaning in our discussion? Why was there such an early and distinct rift in UFO discourse between the contactee movement and ufologists and ufology? And what is a religion? I guess to rephrase here, why is a UFO religion a UFO religion and not just a religion? They do naturally share big overlap in origin as their contemporary new religious movements. As an alternative fringe religion, oftentimes they seem to roll into them various other fringe and alternative beliefs, specifically spiritual beliefs, countercultural beliefs. Particularly as the religions themselves started to rally around as a belief that certain organisations or shadowy people were purposely suppressing information about alien contactees, the religions themselves had a countercultural and alternative image, and unfortunately often a pejorative comparison, comparing alongside organised religions. So I guess it would be interesting to see this transformation in place, because it's quite a complicated story to go from simple narratives of an alien or an alien craft supposedly visiting the lowly, isolated, rural American to complicated cultural religions that have enough of a grasp on society to be consciously marginalised, to be consciously othered by organised religion. How does a silly story about an alien come to have this position? Let's have a look. So the UFO as we know it was born in the 1940s. The first popularised UFO sighting was in 1947 by American aviator Kenneth Arnold. He reported sighting a disc-shaped aerial phenomenon near Mount Rainier, Washington. From his recounting of such disc-shaped aerial phenomenon, we get the terminology flying saucer. And we get from this UFO as well. These were taken directly from descriptions of people's first-hand encounters. Interest in the UFO, at least in the US, kicked off in 1947 with American aviator Kenneth Arnold's reported sightings of disc-shaped aerial phenomena near Mount Rainier, Washington. Arnold's account of what he saw that day ushered in the UFO age, and so I can't give even a surface-level account of the UFO in terms of its religious significance without going over this most important account. Although the UFO age began in 1947, it should be noted that it has no official end date. For all intents and purposes, we are still living in the UFO age, and its narratives and ideas still have influence to this day. So it's important then we have a clear view of where we came from. American aviator and businessman Arnold was excellently placed to give the world's first modern UFO tale. His words were enriched with a self-made American integrity and the implied authority that came with being an aviator himself. On the day he was flying on a routine trip, one of hundreds in his career, 
having taken a slight detour on a lookout for a crash transport airplane, the reward for finding such a generous cash prize. After giving up on his search around 3pm, he noticed a flash in his mirror and scanned the skies, afraid he had strayed too close to another craft's airspace. Relieved to see the only other craft was around 15 miles behind him, he said it from his mind. Not 30 seconds later, bring a series of yet more flashes. And after determining them not to be reflections of his glasses or reflections of metal instruments in the plane or the control panel, he spots the crafts silhouetted against the mountains. Nine crafts fly in tandem near the mountain on a summer's day, June 24th. The skies are clear, the wind only mild. Metallic and estimated in his eyes to be moving at a speed approaching 1,200 miles per hour. An experienced and respected pilot, he described their erratic motion and immediately recognised in them a quality unlike anything he'd seen in aircraft in his career. They sped out of his view into the distance, faster than any known craft of the time. He described the craft as variously flat like a pie pan or saucer-like or like a big flat disc. And from this term, the press coined flying saucer. In the coming days, many more witnesses would appear to corroborate his story. Although nowadays the US Air Force lists the cause of the incident as unknown, the Project Blue Book official theory was that of nearby jet planes, perhaps viewed through a mirage, explaining their bizarre appearance. The military and government response to this account was immediate and in many ways unified. With the coinage of the terminology flying saucer and UFO, Behind closed doors, agencies were established to get to the truth of the matter, suspecting secret Soviet testing or covert spycraft. Project Blue Book was the name for the US supposed official outlet for investigating such claims. This sighting and sightings like it became the framework against which all others were measured and in many ways the responses to it also. There were certain patterns that fit the mould for government investigations, this being one such case. There were also certain ones that didn't. Crucially, this was used to determine from now on whether you'd seen a UFO, as in visiting alien being, or any other unexplained aerial phenomena tending more and more over time to be assumed a secret government testing. These two theories would come to merge once more. And for a while, this existed alongside popular media recountings of the stories. You know, covert investigations behind the scenes. Covert purely because, in a way, to do so publicly would legitimise the sightings. It was something that needed to be looked into for, from a Cold War perspective. These were aerial encounters. They needed to be investigated. 
And then alongside you had the media representation, often sensationalized stories, bringing up absolute rashes of aerial sightings as person after person seemed to see craft in their back garden or over their fields. And these things existed separately for a while. But these narratives, these stories, as told in the papers and on the radio, they became the framework against which all of us were measured. They were used to determine whether you'd seen a UFO, as in a visiting avian being, or any other unexplained aerial phenomenon. So there were two camps of potential UFO sightings. You had the alien being, and you had secret government testing. <laughs> so one of these was an alien UFO, and one of these was proof of secret governmental works. And you see the rift between these develop more and more over time. And in fact, you kind of see the discourse around UFOs develop in these two methods of thought, and we were going to have a look into this. This early tension in which benevolent alien visitation made up one road and shady government cover-up makes up another, with this, the same specific incident can have two diametrically opposed readings. Now, these roads, these two roads we were talking about, would never fully meet back up, as the tension they spoke on one, a need for salvation, purpose, a need for a proof of a benevolent guiding force in the world versus a deepening mistrust of the government, bureaucracy, and the military against the weakening of individual agency in the midst of conflict. For the first time, this conflict held the very real promise of wiping out all of human existence as we knew it. So for some people, it served a very real purpose to believe that there could be other intelligent life out there. Maybe there was another way of living, of being, and there was a way to escape this planet. But these tensions between these two goals, they were never really resolved. They never could be fully resolved. So I guess before we go any further, it's important we take a quick step back. As easy it is to paint the picture of the UFO as a singularly post-crash American dream reconfigured for the new age, the first UFO didn't come from a vacuum. From the days of the geocentric model being proven scientifically false in purely physical terms, the question of us theologically being the centre of God's creation was put into doubt. So for many, the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence is not in of itself in opposition to organised religion, and exists in the same grey area that organised religion is not in of itself in opposition to science. Therefore, any UFO religions are not fundamentally different from established religions in this factor. Quoting from the handbook again, with some exceptions, in general, the idea of intelligent extraterrestrial life is not at odds with an intelligent creator, because Christ was divine. He could also be the saviour for other races on other worlds. An infinite God is capable of creating an infinite number of intelligent life forms. Ufology and religion are not intrinsically in opposition even if UFO religions now are posited as a quack circus mirror version of organised religion, 
UFO religions could in fact be a response to a current unserved need in traditional organised religion. This neatly introduces the idea of exotheology. Coined in the 1960s or early 70s, the theological analysis of questions arising from the new knowledge about outer space. Essentially, it sought to flesh out discourse around our changing place in the universe alongside scientific and academic progress. This changing relationship is not and was not new. A humanity looking upwards to the sky, to an unidentified and powerful force eclipsing and outstripping us is essential to how we talk about the world around us. Thus, the first sighting of the UFO prompted a renewed interest in previous investigations into the unexplained, specifically unexplained, aerial phenomena. And with this framework of a kind of stand visitation to work with, this common shape and framework appeared woven in many historical and religious texts predating the sightings and seeming to imply a timeline or a continuation stretching backwards in time. Wherever humans were, there seemed to be visitations, whether from flying chariots, ships, dragons even. Um, each age interpreted extraterrestrial visitations in the language of its own experience. Therefore, for those seeking an historical precedence with which to understand the seemingly inexplicable, there were hundreds of accounts to be found. One such weird example is Australian Frederick Birmingham's Ark. Birmingham recorded his experience in a 15-page document that on the evening of July 25th, 1868, he had a vision standing on his cottage veranda. He saw the Lord Bishop of Sydney's head in the air looking intently upon me in a frowning, half-laughing mood. It reappeared and disappeared repeatedly, fading in and out of view. Just in the spot where I first saw the head, I saw an arc. He exclaimed to himself, well, that is a beautiful vessel. A voice in the air Birmingham described as a spirit, looking like a neutral shade and shape of man, explained to him, that's a machine to go through the air. He thought to himself it looked more like a ship for water, yet accepted an invitation to explore the pilot house of the cockpit. He described in terms of a barely furnished room with a single table, manuscript covered in mysterious figures and formulae. Decades before the first documented flight, Birmingham's description of the craft is grounded in some ways in his own ideas of what a craft of such type might look like. Visibly distinct in his eyes from a sea vessel, similar enough for him to remark on it as such. It existed at the very edge of his understanding, as was probably the concept of an airship in general. The first powered airships had been around for over a decade at this point, but it's likely that he had only a vague idea of how one were to look. Or if he had seen one, it is likely he'd only ever seen the exterior. 
The gaps in his knowledge are apparent and appear as physical gaps in a narrative, intentional vagueness and room left over for the imagination, such as the charmingly vacant pilot house and the spirit appearing in the vague shade and shape of man. Although clearly deviating from the kind of experiences of the 50s, it's the similarities in this account that are most interesting. For one, again, we have the sudden appearance of a vessel on one's own homestead. A vessel appearing to, to seek out a lone individual or an isolated family with which to make a visitation. The intents of the visitors are unknown, but seemingly neutral. They wish to impart some knowledge, but like with the unreadable formula and mathematical equations, they cannot share all of their knowledge with us, or will not. Yet curiously, even in this very early account, we have an example of the tour, something which seems to exist through almost all UFO narratives, including abduction narratives, this idea of being invited upon a vessel and given some kind of tour. It has a, a lot of very modern UFO concepts embedded within this story, hence one of the many reasons it really grabbed the attention of ufologists at this time, really interested in if this concept had any scientific basis or even any psychological basis, whether it had any link to just humanity in general. This seemed to imply a through line, something that can be explored beyond just individual personal delusion or bizarre reaction to the stresses of the time. April 23rd, 1897, saw the Kansas newspaper Yates Center Farmer's Advocate print the account of Alex Hamilton, a rancher from Leroy. We were awakened by a noise among the cattle. I saw to my utter amazement that an airship was slowly descending upon my cow lot, about 40 rods from the house. The ship had been gently descending until it was not more than 30 feet above the ground, and we came within 50 yards of it. It consisted of a great cigar-shaped portion, possibly 300 feet long, with a carriage underneath. The carriage was made of glass. Inside there were two men, a woman and three children. They were jabbering together, but we could not understand a syllable they said. The publishing of the story brought a nationwide wave of sightings of similar airships. When the story was rediscovered in the midst of the 50s rash of saucer sightings, it came to be an early example of a documented encounter of the third kind. Indeed, in many ways, the story is full of eerie similarities 
to the 50s encounters. The rural, salt-of-the-earth nature of the victim in this case, of the chosen contactee, a rancher tending to his cows, his homestead is suddenly invaded by a human-like, yet possible-to-understand, extraterrestrial being. Their ship appears suddenly above the air and appears to have no influence on the world around it. Indeed, even the shape of the craft, cigar-shaped, deviates from any historical abduction and encounter narratives in that often the ships of these narratives are described in the vernacular of the time. They will be described in reference to existing vessels, such as the famous flying and flaming chariots, massive winged airboats, and even dragons. Yet this idea of a cigar-shaped craft is a very recent-sounding description of an airship seems to imply an increased knowledge of aerodynamics and the kind of knowledge that you would expect a 50s contactee to be in touch with. The ideas of cutting-edge spacecraft, strange-looking, sleek aerodynamic crafts that deviate from the norm. This was a very 50s idea of what an alien craft might look like, and so for many, it stuck out. It seemed to imply a continuation. It seemed to imply a pattern to these encounters that was not new, but seemed to be intrinsic to the human condition in some way. That was part one of the history of the UFO religion. Stay tuned for part two, where we look at the birth of the modern UFO myth. <laughs>